multiplicity of this integration and totally, totally unacceptable degree of disintegration and, and collapse is what we face. And we have to hit back. We have to introduce laws. We have to have ongoing conferences. We must act. We must act against the destroyers of life. We must come together. The whole world has to come together to minimize, if not abandon, the destruction. So long it's been good to know you So long it's been good to know you So long it's been good to know you This dusty old dust is a-blowing me home I've got to be rolling along Welcome to Facing Extinction on Resonance 104.4 FM, a series of programmes featuring presentations and performances recorded at the recent conference of the same name at UCA Farnham. The conference posed the question, what role can artists play in limiting the ongoing decimation of nature? And was convened and curated by Andrea Gregson of UCA Farnham Fine Art Department and freelance curator Rose Lejeune in collaboration with Gustav Metzger. The evening of the first day of the weekend conference was devoted to a programme of performance in a nod to the Destruction in Art Symposium that Gustav Metzger co-initiated back in 1966. We dedicate this episode to four of these five performances. Back to back, and in the following order, you'll hear Ellie Harrison, Carl Ghent, Simon Watt, and Matthew de Curaçaint Girodo. The forms here are contrasting. Anti-capitalist aerobics, a script for a bleak Samuel Beckett-like play, stand-up comedy, and philosophical comedy. First, Ellie Harrison. Okay, everyone, my name's Ellie Harrison, and I'm here to energize you this evening. This is not your ordinary aerobics class. This is the revolutionary new exercise program. And I need you all to take part. I'm not joking, okay? All down the front here. Come on. This isn't a joke. I know you've beaten, but let's get you active. You don't seem to have much energy. That's what this is all about, right? Energy. Now, come on. We're going to bust some moves. I'm here to help you burn off some of that excess. All you need to do is copy what I'm doing and listen carefully to what I say. 
We're going to start with a box step. Okay? It's easy. Round and round now. That's it. Here we go. We're living beyond our means. We waste money we have on things we don't need. Over consuming left, right, and spamming foods everywhere we turn. Sugar highs of consumerism. Technologies to solve problems we never we had. Everything always needs charging up. That's it. Get your smartphone out. Keep on charging it up. There's an endless supply of energy out there. God, put the coal in the ground to be burnt. So come on, let's burn it. Now to our hamstring curl. That's it. You got it. The most important thing is to keep the system going. That's it. Keep moving now. Keep consuming energy all the time. That's what it's all about. Now let's pick up the pace. Let's get faster. Let's consume more and more and more. Let's do it now. Keep working it. Come on. Faster. Faster. Harder. Faster. Stronger. Better. Push it now. Now to a half jack. That's it. Over we go. We live in an absurd, deregulated, growth-obsessed world which continually seeks to profit by making us consume more, 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 when all we need to be happy is enough. Why this obsession? It's when it doesn't make us happy and it doesn't do us any good. At a personal level, growth can mean only one thing. Growth for thighs, bums and tongues. Or time wasted burning off the excess in absurd exercise teams. The system makes you feel as though it's all your fault. The anxieties are reproduced because anxieties help sell. I'm fat because I'm a failure. I'm never good enough. Okay, back to the hamstring curl now. Trouble is, we don't know what's good for us. We need to start joining up the dots. On the one side, we need to burn energy because we're too fat. And on the other side, we need to save energy to reduce our carbon emissions. We should be looking for easy ways to incorporate exercise into our lives, which enable us to reduce our energy consumption elsewhere, like cycling or walking to work rather than driving in our cars. Sometimes the simplest solutions are the best. <sighs> now back to the hard jack. <sighs> That's it. We need to stop obsessing about our bodies. No more personal solutionary. We must address the systemic causes of our problems. This is a collective issue and we need to work together to solve it. Something we can learn. Yeah, it's class. But collective activity is fun. And collective activity is empowering. Moving in unison helps us notice our similarities. The many can act as one. 
Now back to the box step. The way around now. You know how it goes. Round and round. What's the point of wasting time, money and energy consuming what we don't need? And then wasting more time, more money and more energy cleaning up the mess it made. This is not a message of futility, but a wake-up call of where our rose-tinted spectacles have brought us. Right. Let's march it out now. Here we go. Let's remove the profit motive from the distribution of all resources which harm us to consume more than we need. Let's remove the profit motive from all resources we need to consume less of, not more. I'm talking about energy, yeah? I'm talking about food. And I'm talking about stuff we use to heat our homes. I'm talking about the stuff that's causing an obesity epidemic and the stuff that's causing global temperatures to rise to the point at which our species can no longer survive. Don't you think we need to cool things now? Shake it out now, everyone. That's what we really need to do. We need to cool things down. We need our own planned recession. <laughs> Let's take things down to a steady state. Thank you. Right, hello everybody. Um, this is going to be far less fun than that was, but I, it's kind of funny. You just have to work for it a bit. Okay. So this is a play I wrote this year, and here is where the action is going to occur, pretty much. And I'll start. It's called Gnats Inside the Wind, transposed for the Proterozoic Eon, a play in three parts. Characters. No characters. Setting. A barren landscape devoid of life located in an equatorial region of Rodinia, supercontinent comprising all of Earth's landmass at the time. A painted mural of a thick, humid atmosphere devoid of real clouds save for a fogged, deep orange sun with distant cream-coloured mountainous ridges forms the backdrop. The stage is covered in a grey-green landscape of rock. Several isolated stones of various sizes litter the stage, all of a greenish-grey colour. This is amphibiolite a metamorphic stone that occasionally bears garnets. There are no garnets on stage. A small pond rests the audience left of the stage, entire stage lit with yellow and white floodlights. Time. A long amalgamation of cold afternoons in the Proterozoic, specifically the Tonian era, approximately 900 million years before the existence of man and prior to the oxygenization of the atmosphere and the development of multicellular life on Earth. Act 1, Scene 1. Lights fade up. A rocky terrain, a stagnant pool, bubbling slightly. 
Wind is heard, a persistent but not violent wind. An earth in stasis, some kind of equilibrium, continuing to travel, erode and accrete, but in a unidirectional manner. Long past the age of bombardment, the era of methane skies and endless cosmic collision. Six rock stone boulders populate the stage. They are comprised of the same grey-greenish material as each other and of the surface of the ground, hard, granite-like. One is much larger than the rest, not as dense but easily the most uniform in hue and composition, whilst also seeming most in harmony with the surrounding landscape, aesthetically, chemically, morphologically. It rests near the pool, never risking total submersion, but gracefully allowing it to lap onto its bottom edge during wetter periods. As if to illustrate the largest boulder's preferences, a rainy season occurs. White floodlights are dimmed and the pool grows from its three metre circumference to four. Increased wind brings the lapping edges of the pool to the boulder's base. As this continues over the eons, the boulder's rest will become permanent, will sediment into the strata beneath, and the chemical sympathies between the two will cease to be sympathies as the two simply become the same mass. The pool recedes to its normal volume and the sky lightens. Spotlights increase upon the five other stones of similar constituency. These are all of varying sizes, but all much smaller than the boulder, and all larger than a human fist. The three smaller stones are scattered as if from a previous time of flood, deposited from a wash in a pattern that could variously be identified as a spiral, a circle, or a splatter, depending on the spaces where other hypothetical stones could be placed. In their absence, all we can say is that they have been randomly scattered but have begun to communicate with their parents' substrate, begun to physically nestle into their new home, far enough from the pool to escape the risk of hope, of immersion, but close enough to it to be aware of the boulder's strident progress into homogenization, to occasionally be covered by dust from the mingling of rock and rock face. Chemically aware and confident that the time of chaos has ended, the three smaller stones know that their future is signposted by the boulder's glacial progress, but that, flash flood allowing, their journey toward immersion could be much swifter, patient and wary, but signposted. Three smaller stones. And two more. Slightly larger than the smaller stones, smaller than the boulder. One more ragged than the other, broken from parent stone, in ways embarrassed of its crisis, its comparatively recent separation from a strata that the other agents in close proximity are so feverishly headed towards, but also proud proud of its genealogy, of having been closer temporally than the other stones to union with the strata, of having been submerged in itself so recently. There is now some novelty to the tyranny of the elements, of allowing its brittle rupture surface to be smoothed into a new subjectivity. The sixth stone has been here for almost exactly the same amount of time as the larger boulder. However, its position has ensured that its erosion is by wind and sand, not water. It has shrunk far quicker than would have occurred otherwise, and at this point, all involved know that it will not end as silt fuel for the pool bed. Its union is with the sky, not the land. The terrors of atmosphere are the only possible resting place for this stone, annihilation by vapour, not sublimation by water. On a different trajectory than the other stones, the gulf of communication between this rock and the others is vast. However, wind-whipped, the sixth stone spreads itself the most, coating the others in the pool with the dust of itself and with a certain amount of stoic ascetism, is of its destiny. There is no resentment from the other stones. They're on a different path. Fade to black. Scene two. 
Lights fade up to half brightness, the same location. A storm is occurring in the distance off stage. The wind is strong. Two of the smaller stones look at risk of becoming dislocated, rocking slightly on their rest spots. The pool ripples strongly in the direction away from the boulder, risking relocation to a new low zone that would end the boulder's sedimentary disposition. The sixth stone is being blasted by a vicious eddy of air that is stripping several layers of particles from its surface, hurtling it towards dispersion as it rounds the fifth stone into its new autonomy. The stage becomes incredibly dark and windswept. The lights are almost completely cut save for a dull red glow on the backdrop. The wind dies down and the lights fade up. All stones in the pool are exactly where they were before. Their journeys to their futures now fast forwarded a few steps. But as the lights fade up, a new protagonist has entered the mise-en-scene, a seventh stone. Larger than the fifth and sixth, but still smaller than the boulder, the seventh stone has been deposited practically center stage. The other side of the pool than the boulder and between the three small stones, so that any morphological pattern that could have been discerned between the three is now out of the question. It is also propped up in a deeply awkward manner, in total opposition to the synchronicity of the prior landscape, its centre of gravity seeming to exist far from its base. Worse than all this is its chemical composition. Almost pure iron, grey, bulbous with spherical protrusions older than anything else here and offensively pockmarked. Sporadically scratched in its previous violent transactions with other non-domestic bodies. This is a trauma. Chemically, the terrain has become poisoned, electromagnetically too. The new magnetism in the room seduces the iron ions in the original six stones and thus sickens the entire population. Something inside of them has been corrupted, reset. Their loyalties and their long toil of erosion have now been irrevocably altered. There is a hope that the sixth stone, in its alternative airborne allegiance, can act as a kind of intermediary between the populace and the newcomer. But to witness it, it seems as if the sixth stone is shedding less material than usual, as if it has retracted from the new grey horror in the room, clamping its substrate down. The pool is dead still. Bubbling slackened, this alien presence has changed everything. And alien is the word. As the new chemical components swill around the local atmosphere, a terrible truth settles upon the sixth stones. The seventh stone is not from here. It has traveled further, chemically, temporally, geographically, than anything else in this terrain, potentially further than the wind itself. Slowly, a finger of rusted liquid seeps from underneath the seventh stone and, over the course of two minutes, ekes its way across the stage engulfing one of the smaller stones and eventually leaking into the pool, turning it from its muted grey colour to a sickened green. The bubbles stop, fade to black. Act 2, scene 1. Yellow lights fade up. Everything is ruined. The pool, now inexplicably luminous with the thick finger of rust seeping into it, has ceased its gentle bubbling. The unfortunate smaller smothered stone that lay in the path of the rust trail has been irrevocably shifted from its prior rest state, 
coated in ferrous matter, it has its, had its capacity for magnetism amplified to a deafening degree, and its alignment to the omnipresent axis perversely shifted, both horizontally and diagonally. A reassuring north is now a queasy east down, while a dominant south-southwest up now screams a flat and total north. This is the first casualty of the newcomer, but, in truth, none are spared from its toxic presence. Everything is heightened and numbed, all awarenesses. Chemical, magnetic, electrical, spatial, temporal, ontological. Beneath the ballistic intensity of the seventh stone's ferrous sway, there is a deep core of complexity. Metamorphic, the six stones believed they had experienced all the extremities of the igneous, the sedimentary, and all that occurs in between. But the seventh stone, with its exogeology, revealed a dark heart of ancestrality previously unknown to this terrestrial humility. Becoming dimly aware beneath their rusted delirium of new territories, the six stones begin to project other potential genealogies and trajectories. The newcomer spoke of a deep prehistory, a well of time and distance that had accumulated layers, interactions, quantities, and qualities, all newer, older, and all odd. Bearing witness to the past, the six stones and their parent descendant, the terrain, begin dreaming of the future. Scene two. Faster stones, stones that move, stones that can move without weather, stones that can move without weather, without weather, no weather, stones that can move against weather, against weather, faster stones, stones that can move themselves, stones that can move by themselves without weather, in the air, on the rock, in the air, from the air, stones that can move by themselves in the air and from the air, size, what size, smaller stones, smaller stones, Lighter stones that can move. Lighter stones that can move one way and then the other. First one direction, then another direction. Stones that can move in different directions. Small stones. A cloud of small stones that can move by themselves against weather in several different directions. Larger stones. Smarter stones. Larger, smarter stones that can move by themselves. That can move against weather and can think it before moving it. Larger stones that are fast and smart. Younger stones. Stones that accrete and move and subsume very fast and against weather. Stones that accrete other stones. Stones that accrete other stones on the terrain. Stones that accrete, prosper, bifurcate and subsist whilst never joining terrain. Younger, smarter, larger, faster stones. A cloud of them. Stones that can give something to other stones. Stones that can give something of themselves to other young stones. Something of themselves. Stones awaiting stone givings to fill the hole in their own mortar. Stones where this mineral exchange is a metaphor. Stones that are not stones. A cloud of smaller, younger, faster, not stones comes to a larger, younger, but older, faster, but not as fast, not stone, and gives themselves to the not stone. The weather weathering, but how to know? Other stones, us stones still there, perhaps still with the weather, shackles to it with love, but dissolving, dissolving badly. The cloud against the weather, not stones, comes to the larger stone and profess their distaste for the weather, their incompatibility. Not stones that recognize both the importance of leaving the weather behind, but their inferiority to larger not stones, who are further de-wedded from the weather. 
Not stones who are against the weather, but vulnerable to certain weathers. Jealous not stones, proud against weather, weak against weather. Not stones jealous of large, against weather strong, against weather not stone. Jealous not stones, proud against weather, weak against weather not stones, petitioning large against weather, strong against weather not stone for a talisman. Strong against weather not stone, have pity, have knowledge, have mercy. Cloud of small fragile against weather, but weather weakly not stones are hopeless against weather strong times. The east wind, 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 the east wind. Tall, all-powerful, weather deflector, not stone, here's the mercy, and can send the wind easter, more east, but first the beckoning, the east wind. The east wind comes, and the cloud has dusted. The east wind comes, and the cloud has dusted. The east wind comes, and the cloud has dusted. The east wind comes, and the cloud has dusted. Amphibialite, 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 amphibialite. The east wind comes, and the cloud has dusted. The east wind comes, and the cloud has dusted. Yellow lights fade to black. Act three. Full lights fade up. The tongue of rust remains. The pool remains. The seven stones remain. Amphibialite. 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 Camasite. Blackout. Thanks. Yes, my name is Simon Watts. I'm here, I think, today because well, I think I was invited along because I think that pandas are shit. Um, I'm going to justify that opinion. I, I run this thing called the Ugly Animal Preservation Society. I, I should, I should probably explain how this came about. Uh, you see, a couple of years back, I was flicking through the red lists. Do you know them? They're they're kind of like the big book of endangered species, if you will, the sort of yellow pages of death, if you can imagine such a thing. And as I was flicking through, I started to notice that it was filled with butterflies, but there was next to no moths, you know? Because moths are that little bit too dull. They're kind of like the James Blunt of the insect world. And when they go extinct, we don't even seem to notice, never mind care. And I, I thought, this is wrong, you know? We have to care about all the animals. We have to care about all the species, because like, as anybody who's tried internet dating knows, the vast majority of life out there is ugly. <laughs> so this is one of those things we have to really concentrate on. And, and the result of this was I thought we should set up a society. And then I thought, no, we'll set up a comedy night. More fun, less paperwork. And that's precisely what we did. We go around the country, we go around the world even in some cases, trying to get people to vote for a mascot, an ugly emblem that people can get behind. I'm looking for the anti-panda. That is specifically what I'm after. Um, for instance, actually, does anybody know why the panda is the WWF's logo? No? Genuinely. No, it's cool because, come on, it's, uh, it's cute, it's endangered, it's black and white. It saved them so much money in photocopying. That, not even a joke. I asked the guy. That is genuinely true. But we were trying to get people to vote for something like this. We went online, we led an online campaign, and sure enough, the world's ugliest animal was elected. I hope you know about it. Yeah, that was us. We did that. That's the blobfish. Um, I think the comedian Robin Ince sums it up quite well, saying it looks like the final day in a closing down sale of a candle shop. And 
it does look depressed, but it's got a right to. Like all the species that we talk about, it is severely endangered. Uh, deep sea trawling off the coast of Tasmania and Australia is driving it to extinction. We don't even eat it. Like it looks like a deep sea blancmange, but we don't touch it because it probably tastes disgusting. Now it just stands there kind of in floating, neutrally buoyant, waiting for food to come to it. Um, but this campaign meant that I discovered some things about myself and actually for the first time in my entire life, I got genuine hate mail from four-year-olds because they thought I was picking on the blobfish. They didn't like the fact I was calling it ugly. So there was a teacher in the US who decided to turn moderate harassment into a class project and got all her kids to write letters to me complaining about calling it ugly. But the best thing, the best thing about getting hate mail from four-year-olds is that they still sign it with love. Isn't that really sweet? We're not picking on the blobfish, it's just that the panda has its champions. These species don't. We go around the country. Went to Edinburgh. This is the official Edinburgh ugly animal mascot. Do you know what? This is the gob-faced squid. Can I do a quick survey, actually? Hands up if you have heard of a gob-faced squid. <sighs> One. Awesome. No, I'm really, really pleased. I'm doing this everywhere I go now because it did not have a common name until we've named it. It's taken on. There's only been one of these that I've ever found. That's how endangered it is. And sure, it's fat. It's got two lopsided tentacles. It's got a terrifying human, strange-like looking mouth, doesn't it? Looks like the world's scariest fleshlight. It's a horrible thing. And yeah, the guys who laughed at that, you're going to have to delete your server and history when you go home, aren't you? That's a really strange thing. Um, this is not the only one. We've gone to organizations. We're getting people to elect their own mascots. This is the Natural History Museum's one. The Cuban Selenodon. Endangered. Oh, it's got its nipples on its arse. Come on, that's pretty weird. It's one of the few venomous mammals out there. It's got grooves in its teeth so it can stick poison directly into your bloodstream. Um, the poison, its only effect apparently is to make you depressed. <laughs> Not a very potent poison, but anyway, it's, it's endangered. If we went next door, we went to the Science Museum in London, they elected this one. Um, it's a type of a flat, aquatic flatworm. If I'm entirely honest, I think they only picked it because of the obvious comic potential of a Latin name that's got both cock and anus in it. They're quite putrid. I, I don't even think it's that ugly. It just kind of looks like somebody vajazzled a slug. But, but we have to care about all these species. We went a bit more... Uh, Large profile. We went on Radio 4's The Infinite Monkey Cage, you know, with Brian Cox and uh, Robin Ince. We got them to vote for an ugly monkey to be their mascot. They elected this. Ah, the Tonkin snub-nosed monkey. There's only 250 of these left in the wild. It's the biggest primate of Vietnam, and yeah, it looks kind of like a clown of a coke habit or something like that. Or, you know, maybe some kind of creature that very much goes for the sort of impacted velocity approach to makeup that's so common in Essex. But it is still wonderful. One of the biggest primates, and a primate means it's our close relative. And we don't even notice these things disappearing. So this the kind of, there's lots of offshoots to this project. We've now got a kids' show, we've got done stuff on radio, we've done stuff on TV, but... But I also discovered through doing this how many times I seem to be spending my life talking about frogs. Because frogs are amazing and they're quite ugly and they seem to keep coming up again and again. And we keep discovering new and better ones like, like this. Yeah, looks like a second-hand fruit pastel, but it is amazing. This little frog here, it tells us so much about frog evolution as a whole. It's kind of very ancestral. It's so ugly it spends nearly all of its life underground, living on termites and ants, only comes up to breed. And... Yeah, okay, it looks a bit like a bruised bollock. You're probably thinking, is this the scrotum frog? No, this isn't. This is the pig-nosed purple frog. Because this is the scrotum frog. Again, 
severely endangered. It's got these extra folds of flesh that do make it look like a gangrenous ball sack. But the reason it's got this is to breathe through. It lives high up in the Andes with very little oxygen, so it breathes through its skin. That's how it gets its oxygen. Again, severely being depleted. Uh, trites are eating the babies in Lake Titicaca. Um, as well as that, people make them into frog frappes, frog smoothies as a virility cure. As if, you know, you get a hard-on, but your frog breath isn't going to put people off. How stupid is this? This is the kind of thing which is driving species to extinction. You might think that that's disgusting. There's way, way worse. How about this fella? This is Meyer's Suriname toad. Again, he's got some things going for him. He's what we know as a star-fingered toad because its hands are constantly set at sort of jazz hands mode, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's got no teeth. It's got no tongue. It looks like it's lost a fight with an articulated lorry or something. You might be thinking, well, that one there, that's dead. That's alive. Can you tell any difference here at all? So far, so disgusting, right? And we haven't even got on to how they breed. Because it starts off quite cutely, you know, the, the male sidles up next to the female, he grabs hold of her, he engages in what is known as a coital cuddle. Sounds quite nice and cute, doesn't it? That can last for about a day, and then some like proper Olympic-grade sexual gymnastics begin. Because they do proper somersaults. And with this coital cuddle, the male will squeeze the female, and she squirts her eggs all over his belly. And then he spreads these across her back using his back fins, uh, like, as if it's some kind of frog jam, basically. And then he jizzes all over her back. Disgusting, yes? Nature's not beautiful. Please get over this, right? It gets worse. Her skin grows. Her skin grows around the eggs. They hatch into tadpoles, still locked in her back. They emerge as tiny little froglets, like something from the film Alien. Come on, those are genuine frogs. Is this not the most disgusting thing? Yeah, nature beautiful. There's worse again, right? Um, this is one of my favorite species ever, I think. The gastric brooding frog. Now, this is not Russian frogs. This is not like cannibalism or something like that. The female will lay her eggs. The male comes along, he fertilizes the eggs, and then she swallows them whole. There's a chemical in the eggs which switches off stomach acid production. They turn into tadpoles inside her stomach. They turn into frogs inside her stomach, and then she gives birth through her mouth. She vomits her children into the world, which is surely as good a metaphor for life as we are ever going to find, isn't it? The sad news is, and actually perhaps some of you are quite happy about this, this one we haven't seen since 1983. We think it's probably extinct. Please go, aw. Yes, a panto kind of mood we can tell here. Well, the good news is we're bringing it back. Go yay. Reproductive cloning. They've got it to the stage now where they've got a viable embryo. The problem is now technological, not biological. In our lifetime, we will bring species back to the dead. Um, if you're wondering why, I can say that with certainty, because we've already done it. This is the Pyrenees Ibex. They got one of, uh, died out ages back now, and they got some of the DNA from uh, one of the final remaining individuals. They got a surrogate muller in the form of a goat. They brought this species back from the dead. Brilliant. Now, the sad news is it died seven minutes later because of complications of its lungs, meaning this is the only species that's ever gone extinct twice. But we're doing it again. Isn't it wonderful? We're applying some of the best technology to try and solve problems. Um, but, but frogs are amazing. Like, you can agree with me with that, definitely. But we, we need to try and look after them much, much more. It's got to the stage now where two-thirds of all frogs are, are endangered. They're kind of the most screwed of all family groups of animals on the planet. And it's partly actually down to this fella here. This is, uh, this is Lancelot Hogbin, and he was one of the pioneering researchers who made the world's first ever reliable pregnancy test. 
Because he discovered that if you got the urine of a pregnant woman and you put it in this frog here, this is the African clawed frog, Xenopus, then within a day, that frog would lay its frog spawn. And this gave us the world's first ever reliable pregnancy test. And, and the question we, of course, have to ask ourselves here is, how do you discover that? You know, I can only imagine this means that pregnancy means some women just get some form of instant incontinence and are walking around weighing their way through, you know, weighing and everything, sort of pissing their way through the zoology textbook, everything from aardvark to zebra and some kind of golden shower safari. And, and, and even this is pretty incredible because, you know, you piss in most things. You piss in a badger, for instance, all you get is a fucking angry badger. And, and who knows what else we might have discovered? You can just picture one day, can't you? You know, somebody going, oh, I've got IBS. How'd you know? Pissed in a flamingo. It turned blue. Um, in case you're intrigued, again, we've actually been doing urine samples for a long, long time. It's not since this. Like, in the medieval era, you used to pee into a jar, and you'd look at the color. If it was a dark color, it was a sign of black water fever. Uh, and then you'd smell it. If it was a really bad smell, that was a sign of having a bacterial infection. And then genuinely, they'd drink it. This is a real thing. They would drink it, and if it tasted sweet, a sign that you had diabetes, you had glucose in your urine. And it, like, if it tasted fosters, you're fine. That's a good way of telling them. And again, it's one of those things you have to be careful over because, you know, just because all fosters taste a piss does not mean that all piss tastes like fosters. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Matthew de Curse Um and this performance is called The Extinction of the Human Race. Um, what does it mean for me? Um, a lot of this conference, I'm going to read because of an incident in about 2011, I can't really... Um, a lot of this conference is about the extinction of the different animal species, or it hasn't really been, but that is what people said it might be about. So in this performance, we're going to try and face up to the future reality of our own extinction as a species. Um, this is quite a big challenge for the human mind. And so we're going to do it in the only way that I know how, which is... Um, through rampantly anthropomorphic analogy, linear narrative, and etymology, metaphor stories, occasional similes, simplification of false teleology, rampantly anthropomorphic analogy, linear narrative, and etymology, metaphor stories, occasional similes, simplification of false teleology, rampantly anthropomorphic analogy, linear narrative, and etymology, metaphor stories, occasional simplification of false teleology. I didn't expect anyone to do that. That's why I built in that joke uh, there. Um, um, so before we get started, I'm going to need uh, a volunteer for the whole performance. Um, and, who, and they're going to help us represent the experiences that we're going to have by facing extinction. Um, and they're going to represent that through the flip chart. Um, it's a very important position. So hands up, who would like to volunteer? Yeah? Oh, sweet. Oh, I've got a whole bit where I get a volunteer, but I don't need to do that. So if you come up here. Um, yeah, I don't know how to do this. Maybe you're, maybe you're that side, yeah. I'll be more central. I am, I'm, the main, I'm the main one. Um, so there you're, you can use any of those. So your job is to illustrate the things I'm going to talk about with diagrams. Um, pictures or words or both. Uh, you don't need to illustrate everything. Um, but there are a few key terms, so I'll kind of point them out. Um, and you just really need to get to the core of those ideas. Because people really aren't going to get 
them without your help. Yeah, ex yeah, of course. Well, I mean, probably a bit of, yeah. Um, so maybe test your pen. Yeah, is that okay? You're going for green. Um, okay, so we're going to explore what it will be like when the human species does not exist anymore. But because the only way we can think about our own extinction is through our particular culturally and biologically formed brain slash minds, we're going to have to simplify it and put it into terms that make sense for us so we can understand it. And I always find the best way of simplifying things so I can understand them is by telling a story. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell a story. Um, just to say, I don't mean to imply that the way we think is somehow bad or wrong. It just is the only way we have to think about the universe. And that necessarily skews things towards the human. Uh, the clearest example of how the skewed thinking affects what can be thought is something called the metaphysics of presence. So you will need to draw the metaphysics of presence. So I'll be, I'll be talking, but if you just kind of illustrate it. Yeah. So the metaphysics of presence is where we seem to, I, I mean, do you even know what it is yet? Okay. So where we seem to only be able to comprehend things that we can immediately access. So you see this in philosophical stuff, um, like how our ideas of identity are linked to enduring sameness. So when something continues to be similar to itself over time, um, we see it has a, as having a... Oh, yeah, no. That's, you've made it more complex than it needs to be. But we'll see. Um, when something continues to be similar to itself over time, we see it as having a unified identity. But there's no logical basis for this. It's just the build-up of historical and cultural prejudice. Or in a more prosaic example of the metaphysics of presence, um, I always end up going to the Tesco Express near my studios in Haggerston, even though the Haggerston Tesco Express never has what I want uh, and is really expensive. And even though I know that there are loads of shops uh, near it that do have what I want and are cheaper. And also the Haggerston Tesco Express is very badly managed. Um, often things that, hi, it's going to be, I know it's complex, but it's right, yeah, it's fine. Um, so I was in the middle of a thing about Tesco Express. I know, but it's, anyway. Well, that's the metaphysics of presence. That's the, it's a kind of philosophical laziness. Um, oh, I've ruined, I've ruined my own bit now. That was a good bit. That was the, that was the high point. It's going to, yeah, that's good actually. Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, put that down, actually. That's good. Um, well, diet, it can include words. Uh, you know, it can be kind of a mixture of words and pictures. I think that's okay. Um, and the Haggerston Tesco Express is particularly badly managed. Uh, often things are in the wrong place or they're wrongly priced. Sometimes there is food all over the floor and it looks like it has been there for a long time. Sometimes there is a packet of bacon amongst the toiletries and you can't tell who put it there. Sometimes it seems like there aren't any staff, or there's just the security guard alone amongst the debris, helping people use the self-service machines as best he can. So that, yeah, that's the metaphysics of presence. It's kind of philosophical laziness, but it might be a thing that it's impossible to overcome. And so because of that, we're going to have to accept that the story I'm going to tell, to help us imagine the extinction of the human race, um, is going to have to simplify things a bit. Um, we're also going to have to accept that the story might not allow us actual experience of our own actual extinction. Um, when human life is extinguished and all that remains of us is a dusty cloud of matter floating through the void, expressing self-pitying regret and an unbounded ennui via a non-human consciousness. Which is kind of obvious, I guess, because we can't really think about what it might be like to really not exist because we won't exist to think it. And if we did exist to think it, then we wouldn't not exist. It's a catch-22. 
Um, any story we tell about death can't really be about death. It can only get us close to death, give us a moment with it, allow us a cheeky little flash of death's ankle. And even then, we can only kind of conceive of what it might be to be dead, but we can't comprehend it. And actually, I think this might be one of the main things about the way human beings seem to think. The difference between being able to conceive of something and being able to comprehend it is so massive, and yet we kind of blur back and forth between the two all the time. So if you can, next, you can swip over the... Okay. So yeah, we, you're going to illustrate the difference between conception and comprehension while I speak about it. Certain things are only able to be really comprehended through their subjective, effective qualities. A good example of this is the common cold. That is to say, when you don't have a cold, it's very easy to think you understand what it's like to have a cold. You just kind of remember the last time you had a cold, uh, that you felt shitty, that your nose was a bit runny, um, and you had a headache. But that's conception, that's conceiving rather than comprehending. It's very hard, possibly impossible, to comprehend what it might feel like right now uh, to have a cold. Because the only way to really do that would be to really have a cold right now. Oh, that's nice. Is that a brain? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is why, when you have a cold, it's quite easy to feel sorry for yourself and to want to show people how ill you feel and to want pity from other people. But when someone else has a cold, it's quite annoying and you just wish they'd stop sniffing and wiping their nose and making pathetic noises and complaining and being feeble and leaving tissues everywhere and sneezing and breathing really loudly. And that's exactly the same as why it's so hard to empathize when someone describes the possibility of human extinction. Like you have a vague feeling that it's a bad thing. You're like, oh yeah, no, that would be, that would be really bad. Um, but that's not enough really, is it? Not enough to comprehend it. Um, and that's why people seem to be so unreceptive to the narratives of global apocalypse that seem to come along with some modes of ecological thought. Uh, there doesn't seem to be like a way in for people. There's no way of accessing any true understanding of the outcomes. Um, I think that's because of this basic gap in our thinking about death and what it means to be dead. You can conceive of your own death as a distinct possibility, but you cannot comprehend it in its terrible actuality. Um, there's an amazing uh, Jacques Lacan quote from some lectures he did uh, at Levan University. Lacan says, you have a right to believe you, no, your right to believe you will die. It sustains you. If you didn't believe it, could you bear the life you have? If you couldn't totally rely on the certainty that it will end, how could you bear this? Nevertheless, it is only an act of faith. And the worst thing about it is that you're not sure. So, yeah, you're going to try and now draw. That's amazing. Is that, is that an unhappy face? That's amazing. I really like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so you, now, you need to draw non-existence now. Um, and that, I think, perfectly captures the problem with thinking about non-existence. It might be uh, the psychopathological basis for the metaphysics of presence, actually. Even though our future non-existence is conceivable as the only inevitable truth we have, it is at the same time impossible to comprehend. Uh, and that is true whether we're thinking of our own deaths, the death of the species, the death of the world, the death of the solar system, or even the final death of our universe. Like the whole reason we prefer to think about things that we can access, things that are present to us, is because it reminds us that at this very moment we are present to ourselves, that we are still alive. 
but in any time scale that is not exactly contemporaneous with our own, then eventually we will have been not existing for far longer than we ever have existed. And again, that's true of our solar system and our species as much as, as it is true for our individual lives. Um, that's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay. So what's, that's non-existence. We're in it. What's inside it? It is. No, it's not, is it? We should. We'll d we'll do more of these. This is good. Um, okay, so I'm going to tell us a story, uh, and we're going to face up to the death of our species. Uh, like I said, we're not going to be able to access the effective qualities of being dead, um, but we can kind of approach it through language. Um, and like any problem of ethics, the only way to catch it unaware is by sneaking up on it through the dirty undergrowth of aesthetics. Uh, so what I'm going to do is create the conditions for us to become receptive to this story. First off, I think everyone needs to stand up. Actually, there's more of you than I thought there would be. Um, but that's, that's good. That's really nice. So, first off, I'm going to pair us all up so we're all holding hands with someone else. Um, I think that's important because when I imagine people confronting the actuality of their own deaths, there's always two of them. Like old people committing suicide by leaving the gas oven on, laying down on twin beds in their best clothes. Or strangers on a nose-diving plane, mutually masturbating and crying as they hurtle towards the ground. Or in the film Thelma and Louise, when Thelma says, let's not get caught. And they look at each other and they kiss. And the music starts up and they hold hands. And the man runs after the car and then they drive off the cliff. Um, I've not actually watched the film, but I just, that was, you need three examples. Um, okay, so it's better if you're not a pre-existing couple, but that's kind of okay. But if just, just grab a hand, basically. Uh, and you've got to... No, 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 no. You've got, you've got to hold it like, thi like this. Like, like, like Lucy Fryer told me I had to hold her hand when I was 13. Otherwise, I was a baby. That's really nice. That's how I would be when I go towards my death. <laughs> Is that cheating? Okay, that's really good. Is there anyone spare? Is anyone not holding anyone's hand? I see a man at the back. You come up here, man. It's fine. It's fine. No, no, you can come and hold my hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so obviously we'll need help from our volunteer here. So what you need to do is create the meta-language. So the language that allows us to step outside of our language and understand things outside of ourselves. By which I mean you need to make notes on the flip chart. Still, it's the same thing. Um, well, I'm telling everyone else the story. And then what we'll do is at the end, if we haven't all actually died because of the extreme power of the performance of hand-holding and storytelling. No, no, people are clean, right? People wash their hands here. It's Farnham. Um, we'll come back to you at the end, uh, and you can explain to us what we've all learned about humanity and its understanding of its own death. I mean, obviously, that's that will be the kind of finale. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, I think I know you. Yeah, I think probably before, yeah. yeah I've seen you before. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll get towards the centre. Yeah. Come on over here. It's quite hard to read. Like, can you hold? Okay, and the other thing I want you all to do, apart from me, because I have to read off a bit of paper, is close your eyes. Because when I think of death, I think of darkness. I know it's cliched, but if death is a singularity, a kind of irreversible moment in the history of an entity, then it's probably blackness, or at least a kind of pure white. It's probably not teal or a pastel. Teal is a good colour, but it's not a pharaoh and bull. Are you going to do that? Don't 
You close your eyes. Okay, so everyone's eyes are closed. Okay, so we're ready and everyone's holding hands. I'm just going to disengage, undock for a moment. Hold hands properly, like I said. And then I'm just going to put a bit of... Um, When I was about 17 or 18, me and my friends used to spend a lot of time at a guy called Tom Harbert's house. His parents were socially liberal and middle class, and they didn't mind if we smoked there. They were pretty cool in general, actually. John and Noreen were their names. We'd come back there after going to the pub on a Friday. We'd maybe cook some pizza or bring back some food and then we'd sit around the kitchen table drinking and talking. John and Noreen used to spend Fridays drinking a bottle of wine and smoking loosely rolled joints in front of the TV. We always used to laugh at the cannabis they smoked because we smoked super skunk and they had this kind of weak baggy weed that we thought was stupid. Um, when we got back to the house they'd both be asleep in front of the TV. Their house was always really hot because they had an agar. After a while, John would wake up and stumble into the kitchen to make coffee and smoke with us. Then he'd take chocolates and coffee back into the living room and try to wake Noreen. And then they'd eat the chocolates, and drink the coffee, and then they'd go to bed. I always remember it being summer when we were at Tom's, but that can't be right. One night, John and Noreen were away. Me and Tom were hanging out. I was in the lounge. Tom had gone to get more beer from the kitchen and I heard him shout for me. I came through to the kitchen and Tom was standing in front of the kitchen table looking down at his family's dog who was called Tinker. Tinker was really old and he did bad farts and he spent a lot of time sleeping. And he looked like he was sleeping now. But Tom pointed at Tinker and he said, I think Tinker's dying. I looked at Tinker and it was true, he didn't look in a good way. His breathing was very shallow, his eyes were closed, and he was in a strange position, like he was waiting for something. I asked Tom what we should do, and he said that Tinker was old, and there wasn't much we could do. So we just stood, and we watched, and we waited. Tinker's breathing was getting shallower and shallower, and maybe over the course of 10 minutes, it slowed to a stop we saw Tinker the dog take his last breath. Me and Tom looked at each other. I really remember that moment. Shut your eyes. Um, I really remember that moment. We'd watched Tinker die and because of that we both suddenly understood life in a new way. We realized that being alive was an event. Life comes together and endures for a certain amount of time and then it dissipates back out into the universe. Life was something that meant something only while it endured, but when it was gone, that was okay too. And Tom said something like, wow man, we just watched something go from being alive to being dead. And I nodded my head. Then Tinker farted and he got up off the floor and he walked over to his food bowl. And I don't really remember what we did after that, we just, I don't know, carried on drinking all. Okay, so I'm going to bring you all back out of this now. 
bring you all down. Uh, if you want to carry on holding hands, that's fine. Um, okay, <sighs> how's everyone feeling? <sighs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I felt it. Um, okay, so... Okay, so let's go to our observer. Okay, I'm just checking. Yeah, okay. So y if, you, if you could take the mic and you explain what you've drawn. Basically, this is humanity. This is all of us, the four that there is. Um, this is the universe, you know, all the answers to the universe and everything you could ever want to know about the universe. This is one of those open signs, you know, in kebab shops at like 2 a.m. It flashes at you really aggressively. Yeah, that's one of those. So, you know, the door is open. This is us, you know, conceiving ideas, discussions, critical discussions. That's what that is. And through that, you know to go through the door and find the answers. That's my drawing, basically. That's amazing. Can we give a round of applause to Lizzie? <laughs> no. um, so what we need to, I mean, it was, it was really good. It was really good. Um, what we need to decide now is whether that's an adequate um, depiction of the death of all of humankind um, in a kind of apocalyptic global event. You've, you've done what you've done. We'll see how it goes. So, hands up who thinks that was an adequate representation of the death of all humankind. Not a lot of friends here. Okay, and who thinks that's an inadequate representation of all human life coming to an end? No one remembers that now, Lizzie. Doesn't, no one remembers that, do they? No one remembers that. All right, thanks a lot. <laughs> You've been listening to Facing Extinction on Resonance 104.4 FM and specifically four performances from the recent conference of the same name. In reverse order, you heard Matthew de Cursaint Giraudot, Simon Watt, Carl Ghent and Ellie Harrison. My name's Phil England. Thanks for listening.